KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the hour, we'll talk with critic John Powers about the new film American Fiction, starring Jeffrey Wright, and with Fintan O'Toole about his personal history of Ireland since the 50s. But first... Maybe you heard the news. Iowa Republicans met in caucuses on Monday. 51% voted for Donald Trump as their 2024 presidential candidate. 21% voted for Ron DeSantis and 19% for Nikki Haley. John Nichols was there. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation, author of many books. Most recently, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, co-authored by Bernie Sanders. John, welcome back. It's good to be with you, my friend. Well, the New York Times called it Donald Trump's triumph. Nevertheless, you found reasons for hope in the entrance polls. That is true, my friend. And, you know, at caucuses, you don't do an exit poll. You do an entrance poll because I got to get people going in because caucuses are long affairs and uh, people don't leave all at the same time. But also there's a subtlety to it. Our media desperately wants to make predictions about, you know, turnout and results and things like that. And so they do the entrance polls. And unfortunately, the entrance polls tend to get tossed aside as soon as they get the top line that tells you who they think is going to win. And this case being Trump. But I I found this entrance poll fascinating because in the midst of it, they asked if Donald Trump is convicted. They didn't ask about the charges and all that. They said, if he's convicted, would he be unfit for office? And 32% of the people who came out, the Republicans who came out in communities where sometimes the wind chill was 45 degrees below zero, right? So these are pretty motivated folks. 32% of them said that Trump would be unfit. That's a striking figure. And I'll say one other thing about it that's important. I'm not naive. I know that there are plenty of Republicans who would vote for an unfit candidate if that candidate had an R after their name. But what I am telling you is, if you've got a third of people participating in the Iowa Republican caucuses saying a convicted Trump would be unfit for office, that's, that's a red flag. That's a significant number And it fits with a number of national polls as well. So I think that's something we ought to be focusing on at least as much as we do the fact that Donald Trump uh, got a bunch of Iowans to vote for him yesterday. About 115,000 people showed up for these. This is a state with, what, more than a million and a half voters or something like that. So you're right. These are the most committed, most passionate Republicans. And if a third of them, almost a third of them, say he'd be unfit to serve, we do have a significant reason for for hope here. 51% voted for Donald Trump. I don't know, is that a triumph? Half of Republicans say they'd rather have somebody else. I guess it's a triumph compared to 2016 when when he lost to the man he called Lion Ted Cruz. At that point, you will recall, Trump claimed fraud and demanded that the Iowa Republican Party nullify the results and do it over. They refused, so compared to that, this Monday was a triumph, but uh, does this mean that the Republican primary season is over and we don't have to do this on Wednesday mornings uh, from now on? (laughs) Well, we may have to do a few Wednesday mornings before it's done, Uh, but let's, let's put a few things in perspective. Number one, yeah, winning half the vote in a, in a caucus 
as the immediate former Republican president of the United States and the front runner in, in the race by any measure, the guy who literally is in the news every day and thus is identified, whether you like him or not, as the biggest known Republican, is not overwhelming, especially when you're running against Ron DeSantis, you know, who, <laughs> you know by the nature of the game, you know, turns people off every time he meets them. Uh, I don't think it was all that impressive a finish. It was, you know, it's a credible finish. He won, give him that. But he won 98 of 99 counties. So he did have a broad sweep in urban, rural, and suburban areas. And that, give him that. But what was notable was that in the more suburban areas, Nikki Haley really did show strength. Uh, DeSantis came in second, Haley a very close third. Uh, That's going to be very significant next week in New Hampshire. Because New Hampshire, the Republican base there is very much dominated in the southern part of New Hampshire in very suburban areas. And and so you've got a different dynamic politically in New Hampshire. And Haley has been in some polls closing the gap. So I think that New Hampshire is the real test. New Hampshire is going to be the place where it's make or break. If Trump wins New Hampshire big, then I think we can say this is this is pretty much over. You know, he's going to be the nominee, like him or not. On the other hand, if Haley were to beat him in New Hampshire, then you combine that with these numbers we're talking about, a third of voters say unfit if he's convicted, then suddenly that churn, that discomfort with a possibly convicted Donald Trump becomes a real factor in the Republican race. I don't think it defeats him, but I do think it keeps that race going for a good deal longer. There's a deeper question about uh, Iowa that I'd like to talk to you about. It's political transformation over the past couple of decades. Iowa used to be a Democratic state. No state in the nation has swung as heavily Republican between 2012 and 2020 as Iowa. Uh, In 2012, Obama carried Iowa by six points. In 2020, Trump carried Iowa by eight points. So that's a 14-point difference between Obama in 2012 and Trump in 2020, bigger than any other state. Do you have a theory to explain this? Sure. Uh, A couple of theories. And first off, I'm going to take you through a quiz, John. Are you ready? (laughs) I'll try. All right. Who won California in 1988? 1988? I cannot remember. George H.W. Bush. Who won Vermont in 1988? I do not know. George H.W. Bush, the Republican <laughs> nominee. Who won West Virginia in 1988? I give up. Michael Dukakis, the Democrat. Uh, <laughs> How can I forget Dukakis? My point is that states change. California can go from backing the Republican nominee for president in 1988 to being what it is today, which is basically a two-thirds Democratic state. These changes are, are a part of our political dynamic. And yeah. then you ask, okay, is there something anomalous about Iowa? Is it a, a unique dynamic? It does relate to something that you and I have talked about a little bit in the past. Rural America has felt extremely left out of our politics for a long time. Iowa is not an entirely rural state, but it has a very substantial rural population. Its rural counties are still uh, quite dominant in Republican politics, especially. And, And it used to be that Democrats could hold their own in rural areas because they had a rural strategy. They had they had candidates like Tom Harkin and others who could talk rural, frankly, for lack of a better term, and connect on the issues. And you could be quite liberal and still be in touch. That's fallen apart in Iowa. Frankly, it's fallen apart in North Dakota, which was a state that sent Democrats to the U.S. Senate until very recently. It's been weakened in my own state of Wisconsin and others. The Democratic Party 
has got to be able to talk to rural America. If it does, then you're going to see, you know, some you know, clawback in a place like Iowa. You're also going to see Democrats uh, win in places like Montana, where, you know, John Tester is holding on. Uh, and maybe again in places like North Dakota. You cannot get people's votes unless you talk to them. And I don't think Democrats do enough talking to rural folks. I studied this a, a, a little bit. The, the cities of Iowa remain Democratic. Yeah. Of the nine largest counties in Iowa, only one switched from Obama to Trump. It's the other places that you're yeah. talking about that really make the difference. And there has been a significant economic decline. I mean, Iowa is not exactly a rust belt state. It doesn't have steel mills, but it does have a lot of smaller cities and towns that had factories. And those yeah. those have disappeared in the last couple of decades. And you've seen also, uh, this is a big thing. I know that it's like, why do we end up talking about antitrust laws with Iowa? Well, antitrust is a huge deal for Iowa because you've seen the agribusiness uh, come in there and, and take overwhelming control of you know farm country and of the economies in small towns and rural areas. And so there's plenty of work where Democrats could, could talk about these issues. I, I always remind people that in 1984, 1988, Jesse Jackson competed in Iowa and he didn't win, but he did pretty well. I mean, he got, he got some traction there because uh, he went out to rural areas and he talked to farmers and they were like, oh, okay, I get it. And in the fall of 1988, Dukakis won Iowa as a Democrat talking about farm issues. And so this can be done, but it hasn't been done in a long time. At this point, I doubt that Iowa is going to be a competitive state this fall. I think that Trump is very likely to prevail there. But if the Democratic Party was smart, what they would do is begin that rebuilding process. It's the old Howard Dean 50-state strategy. And a part of a 50-state strategy is to have a really smart approach to rural issues. Uh, at this point, I don't think Democrats have, have begun to talk enough about those issues. Going back to the campaign that just ended there, I was astounded by the amount of money spent on TV ads. My friends who live in Iowa City say the best thing about the Republican caucuses is it's the end of the TV ads. They were drowned in, in negative ads $123 million spent on attack ads, basically uh, DeSantis and Haley attacking each other. Tricky Nikki versus DeSantis, too weak to lead. If you take $123 million, divide it by the 115,000 people who voted, I think you get something like $1,000 per vote spent on primary ads. Is my arithmetic right here? Yeah, if Iowa was flooded with TV ads. And I strongly disagree with you about, you know, being excited those ads are done. <laughs> I will tell you, there is nothing more fun than, than, you know, watching like Ron DeSantis find out ways to pick on Nikki Haley and, <laughs> and stuff like that. And, you know, I this year was pretty good in this regard, although I will never, ever forget when a couple of years back when the Iowa caucuses were just the week after Christmas, they, they had them very early in January. And the candidates had to figure out how to integrate Christmas into, <laughs> into their attack ads. And they did it. The amount of money spent on TV advertising in Iowa completely obliterates the argument for Iowa as a starting point for the process. The whole theory on Iowa as a starting point for the process is that it's grassroots, right? That it's you meet with people in their living rooms, you talk to them, you talk deep on the issues, et cetera. And that just doesn't happen in Iowa anymore. In fact, I was in Dubuque yesterday. And 
I was astounded. I've been in Dubuque on caucus days in the past, even really cold ones. And there are signs out, there are, you know, headquarters open, there's all this energy that you, you feel on the street. It, it wasn't there this year because these campaigns had poured all their money into television you know, and a little bit into radio and that. And I, I will tell you, um, there's no argument for an Iowa caucus if it's a TV caucus. That's, I mean, there's pretty, pretty good arguments for, for, you know, changing the way that nominations are done anyway. But uh, I found it dispiriting and frustrating. And frankly, I think it's actually a part of why, one of the many parts, along with 45 degree below zero wind chill, why the turnout was lower. Iowa had the lowest caucus turnout this year on the Republican side uh, in a quarter century, almost a quarter century. And so people weren't energized or excited by all those ads. I think they were actually put off by it. Mm -hmm. You reminded us uh, that we have uh, New Hampshire uh, coming up, the first place everybody gets to vote. And I understand in New Hampshire, Democrats and independents can vote for a Republican candidate. They got to jump through a couple of hoops. Uh, you got to re-register re and stuff like that. But yes, so, you know, there, there are some avenues by which it can be done. And fascinatingly enough, uh, a candidate who's gotten out of the race, Chris Christie, actually made a major play for Democrats and independents. He, he had a whole campaign or a PAC supporting him saying, you know, re-register so you can vote for Chris Christie and stop Donald Trump in the primary. And Christie's out now. But I think uh, the evidence from Iowa is that a decent number of folks may well do that. And you may see some crossover to vote in that Republican primary, probably at this point for Nikki Haley, even though a, a more undeserving candidate you could not find. <laughs> Uh, she's anti-labor. She's extremely right-wing. Blah blah blah. But you know, she's become sort of this alternative to Trump, and because because she doesn't want to rerun the 2020 election and declare Trump president. Yeah, our baseline standard. Although, by the way, she does say that she'd vote for Trump if he's the nominee, and and yeah. also talks about pardoning him. But but the interesting thing about New Hampshire is that it will have both a Republican and a Democratic primary. And I wrote a big piece for the Nation on the Democratic side. That's a, a danger zone for Joe Biden, because if Joe Biden loses, say, a third of the primary vote to Marianne Williamson, Dean Phillips, other candidates, maybe write in. There's a campaign up there to write in ceasefire now on Gaza. Um, you know, if a substantial portion of people who come to cast ballots in that Democratic primary don't vote for Joe Biden, that's going to be an alarm bell as well. Right. I mean, one of the, the realities of the 2020 campaign is that we do face the prospect of having two candidates nominated by the two parties who are not beloved, particularly by on either side. So we're watching these primaries and caucuses, these early races, to get a, a feel for how much disenchantment there is, how much frustration there is. In Iowa, we found half the people didn't vote for Donald Trump. That's a very significant number. You take that and you, you put that in the mix. We'll look at, at New Hampshire. And we'll see similarly, you know, what is there significant slippage on the Democratic side? And so I, I do think we're in, a, we're in the kind of like the, the most important season in many ways of the presidential year, because this is where we get a sense of where everything going forward stands. Iowa told us a lot. I will emphasize, I think, both at the Republican side and to some extent, the Democratic side. New Hampshire will tell us even more. Our big takeaway today, 31% of Iowa Republicans say they'd consider Trump unfit for the presidency if he were to be convicted of a crime. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. 
Thank you, John, for giving us reasons for hope from Iowa Republicans. I think the Iowa Republicans really want you to be hopeful. (laughs) We'll talk to you again the day after New Hampshire. I look forward to it, brother. It should be interesting. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Not black enough? That's the issue taken up in the award-winning new film American Fiction, starring Jeffrey Wright as a frustrated black novelist. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on the NPR show Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he's heard by more than 8 million listeners on the radio and the podcast. He's worked for 25 years as a critic and columnist, first for the LA Weekly, then Vogue. His work has also appeared in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and The Nation. Last time he was here, we talked about Slow Horses, the Mick Heron spy stories that have been turned into a series on Netflix. John Powers, welcome back. Glad to be here, John. American fiction... The film about an unsuccessful black writer is based on a 2001 novel called Erasure, written by Percival Everett, who is a black writer and a very successful one, an award winner. He's written something like 15 novels. We talked here about one of them, The Trees, revisiting the murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955 in Money, Mississippi. That novel was shortlisted for the 2022 Booker Prize. The book that's the basis of the film American Fiction, Erasure, has been called a dark comedy, but it's a lot more than that. It's an amazing book about something serious, publishing black writers. It's merciless as a satire. It's also formally clever and bold. Tell us about the novel that's the basis of the film American Fiction. The novel Erasure came out in 2001, and and I would preface it by saying that when it was written, at that point, Percival Everett had published several novels that were considered to be quite weird, retelling of Greek myths, for instance, academic parody novels. And in fact, he was doing stuff that wasn't officially considered to be black. And clearly this got to him, so he wrote in Erasure, a novel about an unsuccessful writer, kind of like himself in that respect, who is tired of being unsuccessful and is horrified to discover that that he's being told to write blacker. When he looks in the world to see what that means, at that point in 2001, which would be the world of books like Precious by Sapphire, and in, in Hollywood terms, films like Boys in the Hood. You know, also there's Richard Wright's Native Son in the background, which is basically he realizes that if when people want you to write black, they want you to write about the ghetto. And in fact, in the book, there's a book called We Lives in the Ghetto, which is a huge <laughs> bestseller that, that we see parts of and that the hero, Thelonious Monk Ellison, views with great contempt. The major plot point here is that he decides in frustration to write a savage parody of it called My Pathology, spelled with an F, P-A-F-O-L-G-Y, but that is basically a parody of that kind of novel. And much to his horror and surprise, and maybe a little delight, 
it has taken up and becomes a literary sensation. And this, this is the, uh, the one successful book he's ever written, which is the book he wrote with total contempt for the audience and the thing that he's writing. Surrounding that is the story of his relationship to his family. He is from an upper middle class black family. His father was a doctor. His brother and sister are both doctors. He's the oddball out because he's the writer. And his mother is, is, is suffering from Alzheimer's. So you intercut between those two stories, his writing story and his family story. And then because Percival, Percival Everett never writes a simple book, there are also imaginary conversations between people. There are book reviews in the New York Times. There's the curriculum vitae of Monk Ellison. There are, there are parodies within parodies, and the story gets wilder and crazier, shot through with hilarity and anger. Yeah, my favorite part of the things that are included in the novel, there's the complete novel written by our yes, character, the, the, the My Pathology. Novel, yes. Six chapters of ghetto talk. And I'm glad you mentioned that it, the novel also includes the CV and publishing list of, of, of our protagonist, because he has an MFA in writing from UC Irvine, which is yes. just downstairs from my office. <laughs> I know. It's, it's... Definitely <laughs> a sign of, of talent. Turning this ruthless literary and political satire and these formal experiments into a movie is a big challenge, especially for a young first-time director, Cord Jefferson. Yes, um, and Cord Jefferson had a successful career writing TV shows, like things like Succession. I mean, very su successful. But of course, here, here he's doing something which is exceedingly hard. If I can put it in this way, taking a novelist that might've been written if Godard had written novels, a kind of <laughs> Godardian novel, and transforming it into a Hollywood movie that would make sense to a mass audience. So that's an exceedingly difficult thing to do for, for starters. And then in addition to all of that, the world has changed in the 22 years since, since Percival Everett had, had written the book. And one of, one of the things that had changed is that black writing is not treated in the same way now as it was 21 years ago when he made it. So that Cord Jefferson couldn't just make this a ruthless satire of how black writers never get published unless they write obvious ghetto type stuff, because that's simply no longer the case. So in adapting this incredibly complicated, angry novel for a mass audience, what he's done is he's simplified it. For example, you no longer get the huge 70 pages of parody of the ghetto novel. You get one scene, very wittily staged, I think, in the film of, of him writing the novel. You get a sense of it. But everything is played down except for the family story, which I think is made to occupy more of the book. And that's partly for two reasons. You get the family story partly because it's more sentimental. And I think that the, the general vision of the film is softer than the book. But also because part of what this book does that, that Everett does as well as many other things is want to juxtapose the world of the writer and the crazy ghetto fiction with the actuality of middle class black life. This film, I think, perhaps overdoes that a little bit, wanting to move us a lot with the story of the mother's Alzheimer's and all the rest, which seems more generic, I think, in the film than it does in the book. I want to go back to the scene you mentioned, how Cord Jefferson deals with the gigantic section of the novel, 
that is the ghetto satire that our our protagonist, Monk Ellison, writes. Normally, the way this is treated in a Hollywood movie is the writer sits at the typewriter and bangs away. Court Jefferson has a much more creative and pretty successful way of showing what it is that Monk Ellison writes. Tell us a little more about Well, he's writing, but the action is all in the room with him. So that he's interacting with what he's writing and it's taking place. So it's not separate. You don't cut from him and then cut away to a scene from the book. The writing and the scene coexist in the same space, which is probably in some ways the closest thing to the spirit of Percival Everett in the entire thing, which is you have the multiple layers of things working at the same time in, in coexisting in the same space. And, and it's a good scene. And you do very quickly get, in film terms, you register the kind of novel that it is. Because in film terms, as opposed to book terms, a little goes a long way. So that's exceedingly well done. One other thing about the scene where Thelonious Monk Ellison is writing the novel and two characters are acting it out as he's writing, the characters interrupt the scene to complain to him. Yes. Yes. This doesn't sound right. You can do better yes. than this. Yes. <laughs> Which is a nice, uh, what do we call it? Postmodern touch. It, it, it is. And, you know, and, you know, and it, you know, there's, there's a great you know, Irish novel by Flann O'Brien where the characters start taking over, taking over the book from the writer. I mean, I mean, it is a classic modernist thing. You mentioned that one of the problems that Cord Jefferson faced is that things have changed for Black writers in the, what, 23 years yes. since Percival Elliott first published this. That's not everybody agrees with that. Pamela Paul, who was the, was the editor of the New York Times Book Review until a year or two ago, wrote about this. And she says, although Erasure came out in 2001, quote, the mindset it describes feels even more pervasive in 2023. I guess you don't agree with that. Well, she's talking from inside the publishing industry, and it may well be the case. In, I, I simply say in relation to, in, in some of my, for my reviewing, get sent, sent lots of books. I can tell you that just over the 20 years, the range of books that are sent to me by African-American writers has expanded hugely. And certainly critics do things like they now review them. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, because I think you know, I think one of the strange things probably for Percival Everett is you're writing these really interesting, smart books in the 80s and 90s, and they barely get noticed because you're doing something weird and nobody wants to read about. It. So I think it's more open in that respect. I'm certainly not suggesting everything is great. Even the film itself seems like it has to play things a little safer than you would if you were adapt. You know, maybe a comparable adaptation of a white novel, a novel by a white writer about white people might actually be able to be more daring than than this adaptation. But it's it feels to me that it softens it in a way to make it more acceptable and accessible. Percival Everett has written 15 novels. Let's note that the one that was shortlisted for the Booker is about the lynching of a 14-year-old black boy oh, yeah. in Mississippi. Oh, oh yes, no. And an interesting sort of weird side effect of this book when he wrote it was he was a writer who basically only a, a small number of people knew about. This book put him on the map. It, and in fact, he got put on the map by writing the book about how you can't get on the map unless you write a book that's unlike. And he's become a, he's, he became a literary star from this book.
but it's a great book. You should also say that it's not like he somehow lucked out and became it. I mean, he wrote the book that hit the moment and that, and it still resonates. It resonates truly because we also realize that, you know, that with, if you're an African-American artist of a certain kind of, in a certain kind of way, you will always be more successful and more in demand if you, if you do a certain kind of thing. If I can just parenthetically say, it's interesting that Colson Whitehead, who was writing wonderful books, an admired writer who got good reviews, but never really sold or got much all that much attention until he wrote Underground Railroad. And all of a sudden he's writing about slavery, which is the kind of thing he pointedly was trying not to do originally. And I don't think I don't think he he did that as a commercial effort. I think I thought he was pushing himself thinking, oh, this is the kind of thing I don't like to write about. I should probably write about it because it's scary and hard. So, I mean, I respect it. But that's the one that took off because still, I think most audiences, if, if it's a black writer, will feel happier if they're writing about you know, about slavery, then in his case, writing about growing up as a privileged black kid in Sag Harbor. <laughs> yes. Let's talk for a minute about Jeffrey Wright. I think most of us discovered him in the HBO Angels in America. And we saw him recently in Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, where he was the, the general who hosts the convention of the, is fantastic of, in that. Of yes. the genius kids. I see uh, he's also been in three James Bond films and one Batman and uh, lots of TV, including Boardwalk Empire. So he's done a lot and he's very well respected. But people are saying this is the best thing he's ever done. I don't know if it's the best thing he's ever done. I think this is the chance for him to do a lot more of what he what he normally does. You know, I mean, he's been a fantastic actor, you know, what, for 20 years or more than 20 years. I mean, the, I mean, he's been fantastic ever since I saw him, but he rarely gets the kind of role where he gets to be the center of a movie showing a whole different range of things. I mean, usually he is like the fantastic supporting actor. In the James Bond things, he's Felix Leiter. You know, he, he's, you know, he's he's showing up as the friend. And in fact, you're always happy to see him because you know he'll be good. Some reviewers have complained about this movie that there are really two separate films here. The sharp comedy about publishing and the drama about family problems. One critic wrote, not only do the two films barely meet, they often feel in competition with each other. I wonder if you agree with that. I don't feel that they're in competition with each other. I, I think they don't they don't merge together perfectly. And I mean, and depending on which one you prefer, I can imagine being being less happy with the other one. So I mean, I was enjo I enjoy more the satirical hard, harder edge side. And the family, the family side seems more generic to me. Maybe because we've seen lots of movies about families and the dad committed suicide and the mom has Alzheimer's. That feels kind of familiar. It's less familiar with African-American stuff. And I think clearly, poor Jefferson, who's a very smart guy, clearly wants to juxtapose the down-to-earth reality of, of that life where there are family problems, people are sad. The, the brother thinks he's secretly gay and everybody knows he's gay. Okay, there's, there's that with the, the wild comedy because you're, you're showing, oh, that there actually is an ordinary black world that's distinct from both the crazy ghetto stuff, but also from the crazy academic thing because Monk Ellison is a weirdo and he knows he's a weirdo. He's an angry weirdo who doesn't quite fit into his family properly. And watching myself, I got a little bored with the family stuff. I thought there was too much of that. And I think it also softened things a little bit. 
for me, the most telling detail, the sister dies. How does she die in the film? In the film, she dies of a heart attack at a restaurant where they were having dinner. In the book, she's a doctor at an abortion clinic, and she gets murdered by an anti-abortion activist. Part of the book's anger is that sort of thing. The, the, the craziness and stupidity of this, of the, in some ways, maybe the most virtuous person in the entire book, killed by an anti-abortion activist. When you take that out, and she just dies of a heart attack, that's a sentimental touch. And I think with the family stuff, you tend, it tends to go more there. And I would have preferred it if they had kept it with, the, the, with more teeth to it. The novel Erasure is fierce, uncompromising, and, and wild. The movie American Fiction is funny and warm. Yeah. My suggestion is see the movie and read the book. I agree with you completely. I think in a strange way, it's one of those things where it's interesting to, re to do them side by side because you won't regret reading the book for sure because the book's great. I think the movie's pretty good and you won't regret seeing it. It's, it. It actually goes by very well. It's really well acted. Jeffrey Wright's great. It's funny. It's a good movie that's better than some of the movies that are getting more awards. And it has a funny opening sequence making fun of, of a, quote, woke white student. I mean, it's filled with great stuff. It's just that the book is, it, it's, the book's kind of a landmark. And one of the ways it's a landmark is that it's a tricky, complicated, impossible to summarize and to film book. I mean, he's an experimental writer, and it's not an experimental film. John Powers is critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. John, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about one of the best books of 2022, and one of my favorites, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland by Fintan O'Toole. It's out this week in paperback. In the words of John Banville, the book is a study of the more or less sad state of Ireland from the year of the author's birth, 1958 to the present, years of willful blindness, political chicanery, moral duplicity, heedless cruelty, untrammeled corruption, and sheer lunacy, close quote John Banville. But it was also a period with triumphant victories, an Ireland where abortion was legalized by national referendum, an Ireland that became the first country in the world to legalize gay marriage, an Ireland where years of terrible sectarian violence ended with peace, an Ireland that became one of the most globalized economies in the world. Already I'm getting dizzy. Fintan O'Toole is a columnist for the Irish Times and the Leonard L. Milberg Professor of Irish Letters at Princeton. The new book was named one of the 10 best books of 2022, by the New York Times and the Atlantic, and one of the best books of the year by the Washington Post, the New Yorker, lots of other places. We reached him today in Princeton. Fintan O'Toole, welcome back. Oh, thank you very much, John. It's lovely to talk to you again. You tell this story by connecting your own life to, what should we call them, larger historical forces. Sounds very conventional, but the way you do it, it's not. 
the way you do it, it's actually wonderful. My favorite example is your chapter on Katanga in 1961. And of course, readers wonder, well, what does this have to do with Ireland? What does this have to do with you? The Katanga Rebellion, some of our listeners will remember that the CIA helped assassinate Patrice Lumumba, the first elected head of the newly independent Congo, a former Belgian colony. Lumumba had accepted aid from the Soviet Union to fight. To fight who? To fight the Katangese rebels. So Katanga was a mineral-rich province of the Congo. Um, the Belgians in particular, who were the colonial masters there, had a very strong interest in retaining control over it. The British and the Americans had a, an interest in supporting the Belgians because of the Cold War. They saw everything in those kind of uh, antagonistic terms. Um, if Lumumba wasn't one of us, he was one of them. Of course, this was secret. and The, the Belgian involvement was pretty obvious, but the, the US and, and British involvement, French involvement was in the background. But essentially, they supported a secession by Katanga from the Congo. And uh, this developed into a civil war. What did this have to do with Ireland? <laughs> That's a great question. So Ireland is really just beginning to emerge, you know, as a country with any kind of international reputation, right? So it's, remember, it was neutral in the Second World War. The old phrase was always used by the patriots, you know, for, for wanting Irish independence, but we must take our place among the nations of the earth, you know. So finally, you've got the, the civil war in the Congo and the UN has to get involved, but they don't want either side. They don't want somebody who's aligned with, with Russia or somebody who's aligned with, 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 with the West. And so Ireland seems sort of acceptable because it's a Western anti-communist country, but also, of course, it's a, a post-colonial country and it has a lot of sympathy with Congolese independence. And then the Irish army was, was sent in um, supposedly to keep the peace. And this is where my own uh, family's involvement in it comes into being, because my, my uncle was one of the Irish soldiers sent off, my mother's brother, Willie. And you have to imagine this. I mean, th they had... Second World War rifles, and in some cases, First World War rifles. They had heavy woolen uniforms, you know, suitable for tramping around the bogs of Ireland, but certainly not for the Congo. They had never been abroad, most of them. I mean, they'd never been, you know, maybe some of them had been to England, possibly, but they had no notion where they were going. And they were kind of thrown into the middle of this, this really terrible conflict where there were big forces at play. And you open this chapter with... A wonderful scene. Your father had a good working class job as a bus driver. Tell us the story here. Yeah, so so my, my father was actually a bus conductor, as they were called in those days, which was the guy who collected the tickets. And they were all guys back then. The story really begins with, with my father. In those days, the back of the bus was sort of open and the conductor would sort of stand near the, the back of the bus. So he, 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 they were slowly passing a newspaper seller. He saw the newspaper with uh, the image of these Irish soldiers who'd been captured in the Congo. And he, he jumped off and he ran, got a copy of the paper and then more or less abandoned the bus and ran home <laughs> to our house because they they had thought that my uncle was dead. The, the word had spread that these guys had been not just captured, uh, but that they'd been executed. Uh, and so uh, there was a photograph on the front page of the newspaper of these captured Irish soldiers, and it included Willie. <laughs> and uh, that, that was the news, you know. 
turned out these guys had been in a, an incredible feat of arms, right, which was a small town called Jadaville. There were about 150 of them. And they were attacked by 3,000 Katangese uh, mercenaries, you know, led by hardened Belgian and French officers with, with, uh, with a you know, a fighter plane and all sorts of stuff. And it was an incredible feat of arms because they held them off for three days and they didn't lose a single man, you know, and, and they should have been hailed as heroes. But the Irish didn't know what to do with them because the only thing we ever really knew about in terms of arms was martyrdom. You know, if they'd been killed, they would have been sort of national heroes. But as it was, they were actually treated as cowards and as shameful because they surrendered after three days when they realized <laughs> that they weren't going to get any help. They, they never got any medals. They never got any kind of praise for this sort of thing. And it was a sort of weird bit of, of, of Irish history that just didn't make any sense and, and was pretty much buried. But of course, also there was the issue of race. And that takes me to the question, who were the Balubas? When, when I was a kid, uh, if you were behaving badly, your teacher would say, you Baluba. And the, the Baluba were a people in the Congo who, who were actually um, treated appallingly by the Belgians and the, and, and the mercenaries. They were sort of tribal people and they were exploited and, and, and attacked. And the Irish soldiers actually were trying to protect them, but they mistook a lot of the Irish troops for Belgians uh, and thought that they were coming to attack them and they ambushed them. And there was a big ambush where a lot of Irish soldiers were killed. But for about 20 years, this sort of word, baluba, you know, remained as a slur in Irish speech. Um, and of course, particularly when that was attached to black people. But it, it also, of course, through that racism stood for sort of any kind of, you know, bad behavior. You know, judges with uh, juvenile delinquents up in front of them would call them balubas. Amazing story. Two months after you were born in 1958, a team of civil servants in the Department of Finance published a plan for economic development. You say it shaped your life and the lives of millions of other Irish people. This was a plan for Irish industrialization that you describe as the opposite of Stalin's five-year plans. Please explain the difference. <laughs> so Stalin's five-year plans, of course, would always set impossible targets, you know, and then, you know, the Stakhanovite effort would have to be made to reach them. And, you know, all the propaganda would be about how, you know, the heroic people had, had, had surpassed these impossible targets for pig iron production and whatever. Ireland was so demoralized that when, when, they, when they set out this plan in 1958, they deliberately set the bar really low, you know, because they just realized that, uh, you know, the, the psychological boost of saying, we met the target. And the target was 2% growth. And 2% growth by well, that's okay, you know, but it was 2% growth on almost nothing. So by the time I was born, effectively, independent Ireland had failed. I mean, it, it was a failure as a nationalist project, simply because Irish people were leaving in huge numbers. They always had left in huge numbers. But again, after the Second World War, there was a huge exodus of young people, particularly to Britain. And that's humiliating. You know, you've 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 gone through all this pain and suffering to um, you know, declare yourself independent of the old colonial master. And here's your young people going to try and make a life there. There were two countries in Europe that lost population in the 1950s. One was East Germany before they built a wall, and the other was Ireland. And they would have built a wall if they could have built a wall. <laughs> but you can't build a wall around a whole island, although maybe Donald Trump might might, might try it if he, if he had the chance. But so the, the level of demoralization was was enormous, you know, and, and, and just a sense that there is no future. Uh, so what they had to do in a way was sort of burn down the village in order to save it, that in order to sort of try to keep this Catholic nationalist Ireland going, 
they had to change it radically by bringing in foreign capital, starting the process of urbanization and industrialization, which became a process of globalization over time, as you mentioned. And that's really what transformed Ireland in my lifetime. One of your themes is everyone knew. And the first thing here, of course, is sexual abuse of children by priests. And here you point to a, an account of several children raped by a priest that shows what you call the church's great achievement in Ireland. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's a very dark side of it, isn't it? You know, which is that, that it, it, in a way, their great achievement was that they, they got so much into people's heads. I mean, this was a, a society that was completely dominated by the church. Tell us about those parents who said they were apologetic. Yeah, so you, you, you know the the uh, this actually came up again and again. Um, you, you know, which was which was cases where parents uh, went to the bishop, you know, because their kid was being abused, and w went w with a, with an with an apology. You know, to say we're, we're really really sorry to trouble you with this, and you know it's really terrible, and we don't want to cause any scandal, and you, you know. It's it's the sadness of it, you know. Th these were not bad people; they were, they were loving parents who wanted to care for their kids, but they were so scared spiritually. You know, I, I don't just mean scared of kind of temporal consequence, but remember, people really did believe you could go to hell, and they really did believe that the church had the power to decide this. You know, and they people just didn't want uh, to do anything that would damage the church even though the church was knowingly allowing some of the, you know, the most appalling pedophiles to, to operate with complete impunity, you know, and, and th this was the very dark side of this, as you said, that this, I, I kind of write about or use it as a theme, almost this thing of knowing and not knowing. Right. So everybody knew this stuff. We as kids knew it. Yeah. You have a, 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 a shocking, a, a shocking report of about a teacher uh, of yours, a Latin teacher, and your friend David, who actually confronted him in class? Yeah, you know, uh, this uh, it's very upsetting always to think about, but you know, he, he I mean, he would masturbate openly in class. He would he would fondle boys. It was all an all-boys school. So we this was the first year of this secondary school, as we call it, be your equivalent of high school. He would fondle boys, you know, he would sit down beside boys and put his hand down their trousers. I mean, this is in class, you know, in, in front of everybody. So it 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 wasn't like he didn't even feel he had to hide. And I remember David, who was my my braver next door neighbor, you know, standing up one day and, and shouting at him, you know, and 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 of course the one of the distortions that was here, because kids didn't have a, a language to describe this, you know, he called him a queer, you know, uh, because of course in in in, in the kids' minds everything was kind of lumped in together, you know, with very little understanding of being gay, for example, or you know, we, we knew very little about our own sexuality anyway, you know. So these kinds of words were used, but but he was trying to confront this guy, you know. And it was like a moment where you thought, oh my God, this is, you know, everything is going to crumble, you know. And of course, it didn't. It just carried on. It's just nothing happened, you know, and it, it was just sort of ignored. You say that none of the brothers who were your teachers went after you. They picked other boys. Why do you think that was? Yeah, you know, actually, John, I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently. Um, so I always thought it was because they always picked on kids who were more vulnerable, you know, uh, kids who... They maybe knew the father was an alcoholic or the kids were kind of, we were all 
working class kids. Nobody, you know, we were all relatively poor, but obviously some kids were poorer than others. And and I always thought it was that, you know, but but recently in Ireland, there's been a new rash of, of revelations about actually some of the richest, wealthiest schools in, in, in the country, the elite schools, you know, <laughs> and abuse of kids who are from very wealthy, well-functioning families going on. And, and this has actually made me having to have to think about the whole thing myself, even, you know, because I think my sense as to why we were okay, this just seems to be wrong. I wonder, was it something as simple as we lived very close to the school and they knew my father and my father had been a boxer, <laughs> you know, he, he wasn't a big man, but he was, a, he was a very tough, tough guy. He was an Irish champion, junior champion boxer, you know, when, when he, when he was young and, uh, it, it may just have been that they were a bit afraid of my dad. Uh, maybe it was just as simple as that. Another thing that everyone knew was about abortion. While the U.S. recently has, you know, uh, removed abortion rights from the Constitution and banned it completely in many states, Ireland, in the meantime, made abortion legal, not, not by a court ruling, but by referendum in 2018. The story of your engagement with legalization of abortion began long before that, you say, in 1976, when you were 16 and had to decide what you thought about abortion. What called the question for you? Had you gotten a girlfriend pregnant? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, I, I'm afraid I wasn't. Um, I wasn't active uh, in any way that would have made that possible at that time. <laughs> okay. I'm a very innocent boy. But but this was simply that I think because I was um, becoming better educated than a lot of people around, it was assumed I knew things. And a very good friend of mine asked me to come to their house, and and uh, it was his sister actually who had become pregnant. Unusually, you know, the, the, the family said, said she 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 wants to have an abortion and we support her, but we no idea how to do this. How do you do it? And I said, I don't know, but I can find out. And of course, the only way to do it really was to go to England. You know, you, you, you couldn't do it in Ireland, but I was able to get them a phone number. And then being confronted with it, was I going to turn around to that girl and say, you don't have a right to do this? And I knew instantly what I thought, right? Which was that actually what I thought was irrelevant. <laughs> this was about her. It was about her life and her choice. That for me was a kind of moment of, of revelation. But you know, at that time, John, abortion, you have to remember, was was completely illegal in Ireland. In fact, it was a crime in Ireland to tell a woman the name of an abortion service in England. It's the sort of thing Texas is trying to do yeah. uh, right now. But Absolutely. you say the point of that law was not actually to stop Irish women from going to England to get abortions. What, what was the point? The point was to stop them talking about it. The point was to maintain the knowing and not knowing. And of course, this is something you're confronting in America right now, right? Which is that the right-wing conservatives both want and don't want to stop abortion. <laughs> they actually don't want to face the consequences of, of what happens. Uh, if you start jailing everybody who, as you say, gives somebody a phone number for an abortion clinic, or uh, they just want to um, make women ashamed, they they want to make sure that women don't talk about it, don't acknowledge it, that it that the things that flow from that, which is that women have a right to control their own reproduction, is not part of the public discourse. And this is what happens in Ireland, right? Which is that for years and years and years, Irish women had abortions. They went to England. I never. Never, really until I would say I was in my late 30s, met a woman who told me she had an abortion. 
And that was true of all my friends, uh, people I worked with. There was this invisible, silent group of women, you know, getting into the hundreds of thousands, of course, you know, uh, but they didn't talk about it. The weird thing, and I, uh, people in the States might get some comfort out of this, is that actually the right pushed it too far. In 1983, we had a referendum to put this clause into the Constitution. Now, the country in the world at least needed a constitutional uh, ban on abortion. <laughs> was Ireland. It was already banned. You could already get life imprisonment. You know, what else could you do? But what was the vote? What was the vote on adding this ban on abortion to the Constitution in 1983? It was two to one, John. You know, I, I remember at the time just the sense of despair. You know, it was overwhelming, two to one. I'm sort of even slightly relieved that we that we got the the one bit, you know, that apparently people voted against. <laughs> and then, when it was repealed, when it was repealed by the referendum in 2018, what was the vote then? It was two to one. <laughs> it was almost an exact reversal, you know, and it was a very very moving moment because the the original referendum in '83 had been terribly divisive, you know, and really awful stuff, you know. And, and everybody feared that kind of re rerunning it in 2018. That I think most of us thought, well, yes, it, we will win this time. You know, it, it will be repealed, but it's going to be nasty. And actually, to be quite honest, it wasn't nasty. And and one of the reasons it wasn't is that um, the silence was broken. Women spoke about their lives and they spoke about their pregnancies and they spoke about what the choices that they they wanted to make and had to make were. One of the bad things about Ireland is that it's a small society, and if 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 it's kind of in a hysterical conservative mode, uh, it can be really really claustrophobic. The good thing is that if that turns around the other side, it's a small society where everybody knows everybody, and the person you know is your mother or your sister or your workmate or your colleague who who's saying, "Well, I had an abortion," and so storytelling actually. This happened twice. 2015 was the first time we had a referendum on same-sex marriage. And we were the first country in the world to bring in same-sex marriage by popular vote. You know, it's happened through courts or parliaments. And again, that, that was two to one too, you know, in, in favor of same-sex marriage, which was very, very moving. But again, it was one because LGBTQ people, they had to break their own privacy and nobody should have to do this. I mean, nobody should have to go out and tell their story, but, but they did it with, 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 with grace and wit and humor and, and, and compassion. And it, it actually became a sort of love, lovely moment. And I, I remember my father, you know, whom we started with, you know, who was, who was well into his eighties, you know, and I'd been in America. I, I was in here in Princeton. And I, I, I just got home for the vote a couple of days before. And I said to my father, and I wasn't sure how he would feel because he was a very liberal man, but also he'd grown up, you know, with, with certain prejudices and all that, you know, and I said, so how do you think it's going to go? And he looked at me like I was an idiot, you know, he just said, why would anybody vote against that? He, he, he literally couldn't get his head around the idea that anybody would, would, would think it was wrong that LGBTQ people could marry. So, so the, the, the change was really very, very profound. And it was a human change. You know, it actually just came from engaging with, with, with our fellow men and women. You say abortion was the great boundary line in a way that LGBTQ rights had not been. It was the border that gave shape to the whole territory. And so the the effort to make Ireland a modern global economy while preserving this traditional Catholic 
church-dominated culture failed, the people who worried about preserving that difference between the cultural tradition, let us call it nicely, and the economic modernization thought that joining economic and cultural change would mean Ireland would disappear as a separate culture and just become a version of America. Do you think that's happened? Uh, no, it hasn't. I mean, obviously, the place has changed hugely. Uh, all societies change when you move from the countryside to the city, you know, when you move from an agricultural economy to 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 a very sophisticated one. When you move from being like, we, when I was born, we were the worst educated people in Europe, and we're now the best educated. <laughs> 55% of the entire population has a third level degree. So, of course, the culture changes, but I don't think it's less rich. I think it's richer. It's, it's actually a very important question, though, John, because the right builds on cultural pessimism. It, it understands culture as something which is fixed, which was created at some point in the past, and therefore in a way can only be lost. The only thing that really happens to it is it gets eroded, you know, unless it's protected. And of course, Ireland is one of the great examples of a culture which has been formed through transformation, you know, all the time. Because remember, it's a diaspora culture. You know, it's 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 a culture which for hundreds and hundreds of years is shaped by migration and pretty in our case outward migration and now by inward migration it's giving and taking and mixing and matching and i've never been a pessimist about that just because you know you just look at uh, the vibrancy of of irish culture and uh, i think it's a very good rebuke to those attitudes on the right you know about what culture is the book is we don't know ourselves a personal history of modern ireland by finton o'toole it's one of my favorites it's out this week in paperback finton thank you for writing this book and thanks for talking with us today it's been a huge pleasure john thank you we spoke with finton o'toole in february 2023 <music> That's it for Living in the USA for today. Our producer and social media maven is Renee Reynolds. Our audio editor is Alan Minsky. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you missed part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at applepodcast.com, Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music